Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. There are 39 milahot which constitute forms of work forbidden on the Sabbath. It's the why behind the way we do the things we do. Join Rabbi Musha Schnurb now for Hilchos Shabbos, only on 101.9 Chai FM. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. How about starting off today with a quick vignette from no one better than Roberto Wine himself. He says uh, when he was growing up in Chicago, it was a long time ago, so most Jewish families were still living under the shadow of the, of the Depression. As such, when I was young, I always had only one pair of shoes which I wore on weekdays and Shabbos and, and Yontif and even special family occasions until they completely wore out. Then I got another pair of shoes. By the time that my children were born and required shoes, Baruch Hashem, the general financial matzav in the United States and especially amongst the Jewish from community had changed for the better. So one of the first things that my wife and I decided to do to make Shabbos special in the eyes and minds of our little children was to institute the concept of Shabbos shoes. Right? They would each have a separate pair of shoes to wear on Shabbos. These shoes were shinier and prettier, though not necessarily more expensive and the shoes that they wore to school and played in during the week. It was meant to create an idea that is central to Yiddish life. Shabbos is special and must be treated that way in every facet of our otherwise mundane existence. Having a different, ostensibly nicer and better pair of shoes to wear on Shabbos reinforces the idea that Shabbos is special, beautiful, and something to look forward to all week long. However, as a child of depression, I continued to wear one pair of shoes on each day of the week, every day of the year, until that pair of shoes finally wore out. Then, I bought another pair that I continued to wear daily until those two finally collapsed from wear and tear. I've always worn a special suit of clothes for Shabbos. However, I never bought for myself a pair of Shabbos shoes. Always had my weekday shoes polished for Shabbos, but habit is a very, very strong impediment to changing one's way of life and even one's spending habits. However, Last month, the shoes that I was wearing literally fell apart. And therefore, coronavirus and all, I went to the shoe store to buy a replacement pair of, of shoes. While there, I decided that I was going to buy a lightweight shoe to wear during the weekdays. At my stage of life, anything that helps me walk more easily that becomes a necessity. Naturally, the shoes that I bought had to be black, as befitting 
the rabbi, right, of the important congregation that I serve. However, suddenly on impulse, I also purchased a much more expensive and stronger shoe that I decided I was now going to dedicate as, as my, as my Shabbos shoes. It took about three weeks for the shoes to finally arrive at the shoe shop. But when they did, and I began to wear them, I'm happy to report they fit perfectly and are most comfortable. But then I experienced a sudden surge of nostalgia and even excitement because I felt I was reenacting the experience of my little children when they put on their Shabbos shoes on Friday afternoon. They were always so proud of how they looked in those shoes. I have no doubt that it enhanced their Shabbos, and now I felt that it enhanced my current Shabbos experience markedly. I have the delicious experience at my age of being like a child with all the wonder, excitement, and optimism that is reserved for the very, for the very young. Isn't that an interesting way? How many of us can still have that perspective on life where things are exciting and new and, and wonderful and we get that special, special Arab Shabbos feeling? Isn't that really something special that we should try to, that we should try to, try to, uh, hold on? Now I know that you're gonna say that I'm reading too much into this mundane and ordinary experience, such as buying a pair of shoes, but all my life, I believe that there really are no small matters in life and that everything, ordinary as they may appear, on the surface has really an importance far beyond the act itself. Shoes are an important item in our minds. It is, it is not for naught that there are holy days in the year where we are meant to mourn and afflict ourselves when wearing comfortable leather shoes is forbidden. Part of this concept is that the rest of the year, shoes are important. In fact, one of the blessings we make in the morning, according to Jewish tradition, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has fulfilled everything that is needed. And this includes having a good pair of shoes to wear. Having special shoes for Sabbath really does make a lot of sense for us, both spiritually and psychologically. This is 11.9 Chai FM. Don't go away. We're just beginning. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb, only on 101.9 Chai FM. 101.9 Chai FM, soul to soul. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on this beautiful Erev Shabbos Kodesh, Pashas Vo'era, as we're kind of getting back into the swing of things and the year is picking up and everyone is back from holiday. The streets are full again. The queues at the shops are, are long again, but we hope everyone had an amazing and wonderful holiday. We really got a bit of rest and a bit of sun, whether you could go to the beach or you couldn't go to the beach, but either way, just to be out of Johannesburg is, is something very, very special, and we're, and we're so happy to have you back. We hope that you manage wherever you were to still tune in to Chai FM and actually be part of our radio broadcast, which Baruch Hashem 
went out every Friday afternoon during during the holidays. Let's start with a, a small vort just to get kick things off. So in this week's parsha, we have of course the first seven of the makas, and the second one is the frogs. Shoratzaya or Tzfardim. And the river, the, the Nile is gonna swarm with frogs. Uvog Besech, they're gonna come into your house. Uva Amcha, in amongst your whole people. Uva Tanorecha, into your ovens. Uva Misharasecha, and into your kneading bowls. So we know the frogs were really kind of a hardy bunch that swarmed all over, uh, Mitzrayim. No place was considered off limits to them. Even the burning hot ovens didn't prevent them from fulfilling HaKadosh Baruch Hu's commands. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, go, they went. And you can imagine, it took tremendous mysterious nefesh, right, self-sacrifice for those frogs to go into a burning hot oven. For all intents and purposes, <laughs> it meant it was a death sentence. They were certainly going to die. In the end, they were the only frogs who did not die. Now, which means whatever, whoever carries out HaKadosh Baruch Hu's mitzvah, right? Shema mitzvah, lo If you do a mitzvah, nothing bad is going to happen to you. Chazal, in, in, in Yuma, says that years later, Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, they entered the fiery uh, cauldron that uh, had been set up by, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and they did it motivated by a Kavachimer, right, which is a priori argument derived from these Egyptian frogs. They're, they're, it went as follows. Frogs don't have an obligation, don't have a mitzvah of sanctifying Hashem's name. And yet, the frogs entered the Egyptian ovens, knowing that they probably were not going to survive. So certainly, Jews who have this mitzvah of of Shem Shemayim are obligated to enter into even a fiery pot to demonstrate their inexorable and, and completely uncompromising devotion to, to the Rabbanishtra. Now, the Maharshan, the Gemara there, presents almost like a, a counter question to this Kabachon. says, on the contrary, since frogs do not really have a mitzvah of Chaybohem, they don't have an obligation to preserve their, their lives, right? Which we know every single Jew has. Uh, an obligation to live and not to give up his life uh, in the performance of of any mitzvah. So the frogs really had nothing to cause them to refrain from expressing their devotion to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Not even their lives. Um, but on the other hand, Hananel, Mishoya, and Azariah had a very powerful reason for trying to stay alive. Right? They have a mitzvah to stay alive. Furthermore, we know that the the uh, image that Nebuchadnezzar placed before them, which which he wanted them to bow down to, was not even really an idol. It didn't represent any kind of I don't know pagan deity, which is another reason 
why these very holy men did not really have to give up their lives. So we see, we return to our original question, what was their kavachom? It doesn't actually seem to make any sense. Now, Avram Kamalnovitz was brought down by Roshi uh, Ba'elio uh, Svei, explains that indeed they had no underlying obligation to sanctify their lives because they had not been asked to bow down to an idol. Nevertheless, just because there's no mitzvah at this moment of Kiddush Hashem doesn't take away from the fact that what they were being asked to do was a, a chilal Hashem, was a denigration of the covet of the glory of, of Shemayim. To bow down to this image at the, at the request of this evil goy, Nebuchadnezzar, right? One who had earned his, his, uh, his kudos murdering Jews was an absolute chil Hashem. That was a profanation of Akash Parchus name. Therefore, the general community was obligated to take action. To preserve the covered Shema and the glory of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Someone had to take a stand in defiance of, of Nebuchadnezzar. Now the question began. Agreed that someone had to give up his life. Who says that it should be me? Right? Let it be someone else. Right? I would like to fulfill the mitzvah of B'chaibem. Of staying alive and, and continue to live. They thought about this for a very, very long time. And they ruled for themselves based upon their kavachomer from the frogs. The frogs were given a general command. Go all over Egypt. They too had a question. Why should I be the one who entered the ovens? Let it be the next frog. I would rather sort of lay in Paro's uh, you know, soft pillows. This too is a mitzvah. Regrettably, it's always going to be someone else. Let someone else be the one to do it. I don't have to do it. Right? Certain frogs didn't take this attitude. They understood that when action needs to be taken, we don't need to be the one to take it us. Let someone else do it. Right? These frogs realize, no, we're the ones that have to act. That's the lesson which Hanani, Mishal, and Isaiah learned from, from the frogs. When there was something that had to be done, they entered the fire to demonstrate to Nebuchadnezzar that the glory of Hashem is sacrosanct and actually supersedes everything. And this is an issue that happens and comes up so often in our own lives where someone has to do something, be it in the home, be it in our community, in, in, in our shul. Yes, yes, it would be a good idea if someone did something. I, I'm still very interested in trying to find out who this someone is. One could even Google it and try to find out who this invisible and enigmatic someone is that's going to do something, that's going to do everything. And he's, and he's like ubiquitous. He's, he's everywhere. He's in every shul. He's in every home. He's in every situation. This, this somebody, uh, uh person. We need to be that somebody. If something needs to be done, don't wait for someone else to do it. Because the reality is, 
<laughs> they're going to wait for you to do it. And we're going to go sit around and actually nothing is going to get done and things are going to fall between, between the cracks. What, what Hanan and Mishab Azaya learnt from the frogs is whatever the cost is, if there's something that needs to be done, don't wait for someone else to do it. Let me be the one to, whether I have to do it or not, it could be that I have an excuse not to do it. Maybe someone else really should be doing it. But if it's not getting done and it's something that needs to be done, let's jump into the fire. Let's take the initiative. Let's really get moving and, and, and carry out the things that need to be done, even if they may not be our favorite activities, even though we'd rather be relaxing or doing something that we enjoy more. Nevertheless, that was the telltale lesson that these great, great giants of our, of our history, Hanan, Mishlava, and Isaiah, learned from, from the frogs and they, and they carried it through. This is 11.9, Chai FM. This is soul to soul. Please don't run away because we're just beginning to get warmed up. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, soul to soul, back on your radio on Friday afternoon. Erev Shabbos, Chodesh, Parshas, Vo'era, this second day of Chodesh, Shabbat. Yep, Tuba Shabbat isn't far away, and certainly there are other Chagim that come afterwards that are not far away either. <clears throat> So on these Shabbos, we're already starting to read about the process that led up to Yeshivas, to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And of course, the importance of talking about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So everyone says, the Chedush Rim says that every single person needs to learn the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim the way he learned any other piece of of a, of a, of Taira. Right? And, and, and there's a special Sugula in, in the story of Itzias Mitzrayim that in the same way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took revenge in Mitzrayim against all our enemies. So it says, Laman Tisaper Ba'ozne Bincho Ben Bincha shall tell over your children and your grandchildren, how I played with the, the, uh, the, the Egyptians, how in his great, uh, uh, uh mercy, Kodesh Baruch Hu did tremendous miracles for Kla Yisrael, time after time and freed them from their enemies. That arouses in Shemayim a tremendous, tremendous compassion for Kla Yisrael. And therefore, even in future times, in any generation where the Jewish nation needs to be freed from an oppressor, where revenge needs to be taken against an entity or, or a nation who's standing up against Kaisal to crush them under their, under their boots, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes revenge on them because there's already a precedent, there's already a pattern in Shemayim that started at Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu being able, that's the Saper Bosnei Bin Chobet Bin something that's going to last for all, for all generations. In fact, the, the Bnei Sacher adds also that the, uh, the, the power of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is to arouse tremendous miracles for, for Jewish nation. 
And if it happens any time, any tzara for the Jewish nation, so if we think about and we remember the miracles of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, that can help us in all of those, in all of those, uh, in all of those uh, tzaras. Furthermore, that tremendous, tremendous outpourings of, of blessing came to Klai Yisrael through the Makas in Mitzrayim. And therefore, through the talking about the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, we again arouse for ourselves those positive uh, benefits. For instance, it's, uh, it's brought that, uh, all the Makas affected the Egyptians and, and supplied some kind of a healing element to the Jewish nation. For instance, it's brought that in the first Makkah, the Makkah of, of blood, so any, uh, 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 women who weren't having regular cycles, who were having difficulty, uh, uh, becoming pregnant, all of that was sorted out during the Makkah's dam, during the Makkah of Tzvadea. So if, if there were any Jews who were suffering from worms, so the frogs sorted, sorted that, uh, that, that out. And again, the, and in fact also that Paro hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that created a refuah, a, a boomerang, the opposite happened to the Jewish nation, that we were cured from any difficulties we had in our amuna, and, and we were able to re- deeply root and strengthen the, the amuna of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in, 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 in their hearts, and the amuna of Hashem, and the amuna of, of his tzaddikim, by Yaminu, by Hashem, over Moshe, over Moshe, uh, and that was strengthened through through the Makas. Now, the the in fact the uh, the the Medrash explains the pasuk. The pasuk in Pashas Ekev, Hamasa Sagadoyla Sashero Einecha. That uh, that the tremendous uh, 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 signs that you saw, and and the miracles, and and the wonders, and Hashem's strong hand, and His outstretched arm. Which our Kodesh Baruch took you out with from Mitzrayim. Skein Yasa Hashem Lokechal Chal Amim. So Hashem will do for all the other nations. Asherata Yorei Mipneim. Which you think you're so you're so scared of. So what are these oisays that 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 happened? So the Rabbanon say that the 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 markers were actually imprinted on the bodies. Of the, of the, uh, of the Mitzrayim. And in fact, uh, uh, I, I saw explained on the, uh, on the Agadah, so Pesach, on that very enigmatic, uh, uh, phrase, Rabbi Yehuda, Yanaisem Bem Simonim, Rabbi Yehuda, uh, 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 gave a mnemonic, seemingly, for the plagues, the Tzach Adash, Biachav, and everyone wants to know what, what, what's Rabbi Yehuda teaching us here? What is the, the Chiddush? The novelay of that, of that, uh, of that statement. So the commentaries explain that Rabbi Yudah Bahem Simonim, that the plagues were, 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 were actually imprinted physically on the bodies and there were signs on each one. It actually became part of, of, of them. And, and the, the, uh, 
the the medrash then uh, then says that that these markers were actually Im- imprinted, and therefore we can say that again, uh, 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 if 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 what happened to the uh, Egyptians, the exact opposite happened. So we can say that in, in truth, there are really like three le- three levels of of emunah and Hakadosh Baruch Hu. There's the intellectual belief, the understanding that a person understands that there's nothing else in the world than Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Higher than that will be the level of emuna in the heart, where you feel it and and and, and you're emotionally convinced that. There must be Akash Baruch Hu. And even above that is where it's actually translated into your limbs, where it's imprinted, implanted on you and everything you do and every action is the Amuna in, in, uh, in, in Akash Baruch Hu. When we talk about the story of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, we merit that the, the, uh, the, the Marcus and, and the benefit of those Marcus that we get gets imprinted and gets, gets embedded into into us and that raises our level of 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 emuna in in Akadosh Baruch it goes up not just in the mind not just in the heart becomes something that's just like the the, the Egyptians had the makas on their body we have emuna Akadosh Baruch imprinted all 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 over us now when we were in 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 nursery school we were always told that the makas in uh, in Mitzrayim, that uh, they affected only the the Egyptians. The, the Egyptians were struck with ten makas, and the Yidden that were in Eretz Goshen weren't touched at all. And in fact, the Rambam writes that uh, in in his Perushim Shnais in in Avos, he says the Mishnah says, "Asara nisim nasu ten miracles. Happened to our forefathers in Mitzrayim. And the Rambam explains, what does that mean? What were these ten miracles that happened to our forefathers in Mitzrayim? He says that was that they were saved from all of the ten, of the ten Marcus. And since each one of the Marcus was, was unique for the Egyptians, it did not affect the Yidden at, uh, at all. And that is a miracle. That, 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 there was the plagues going everywhere and not affecting any Jews. That was the ten miracles that happened in uh, in 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 Mitzrayim. And in fact, the 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 language of the Torah by each one of the Marcus that Hashem brought in Mitzrayim uh, uh, shows that they were all on the Mitzrayim except for one by the by the Marka of Kinim. It doesn't say there anything that there was a distinction between between the the Egyptians and the and the uh, and the Jews. But says the Ramam, it's well known that the Jews were not were not punished, but there were kinim by them, but it didn't cause them any any uh, any pain. And he says that's how the Chachamim. Ex- explain. But all the other nine makas, the Torah clearly says the distinction that it only affected the Egyptians and not the Jews. And it mentions two, I'll just bring a few. By the, by the, uh, blood it says, the Egyptians were not able to drink water from the, from the, from the, or 
right? Only that the Egyptians couldn't couldn't uh, drink. By the by the frogs, it says they're going to come into your houses, into your bedrooms, not into the Jews. Right? By the wild beasts, it says Hakadosh Baruch is going to make a distinction today between Eretz Mitzrayim and Eretz Goshen, not in Goshen. By the pestilence, it says not a single Jewish cattle died, not even one. By the boils, it says that the Shechin affected the Egyptians and all of Mitzrayim. By the hail, it says, only in Eretz Goshen, where the Jews were, there was no hail. By the, by the locusts, it says that the locusts covered all of the land of Mitzrayim. And by Choshka, it says that the Jews had, had, uh, had light. It's very fascinating, therefore, to read the commentary of the Eben Ezra, which if you want to look at it, it's in Perik Zion, Pasuk Choftalit. He says something very, very, very new. And he says that according to my opinion, the first three makas, Dam, Tzvadeah, and Kinem, included both the Egyptians and the Jews. Because the, 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 uh, the those three makas that, uh, that uh, since the the Egyptians served the Nile River. Therefore, Hashem punished their, their gods. And then, and then, and then, the, uh, 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 these, 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 uh, these affected the Jews, but they only bothered them a little bit. And it was only from the fourth Makkah, from the Makkah of Arav, that, that was a very, very difficult Makkah, and there the Jews were totally, totally unaffected by, by it. Now it's, the Ebenezer is, is saying from the, from the Psukim that, the, that only by Arav is the first time it says quite distinctly that Hashem is making a distinction between Eretz Mitzrayim and Eretz Gaishan, Asher Ani Oimeid Oleha. So she says, since that's the first time the Torah says that explicitly, that was the first time that the Jews were totally unaffected by, by the, by the, uh, by, by the Marcus. But the first three, there was still a, a bit of a distinction, but, uh, that, but punished the Mitzrayim in, in, in stages. In the first stage, the, the, uh, the Maka Touched the it's the 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 uh, the uh, Egyptians them themselves, but not as badly uh, uh, affected. Also, the Jews on the second stage only the Egyptians were were hit, and 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 therefore Paro understood when it got to the stage where the Jews stopped being punished, and and only the Egyptians Paro understood that it was time to make life easier. For, for the Jews, and he began to lessen the degree of the, of the, uh, of, of the servitude. The, the Radvaz of David ben Zimra, he goes to war, almost, against the, the, the explanation of the, of an Eben Ezra, and, and he brings down that what the, what the Eben Ezra says that Makasdam, Tzvadea, and Kinim were for the Egyptians and the Jews, he says it's forbidden to believe something like that, and and the Radvaz believes that the Eben Ezra makes a mistake in 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 the actual uh, uh, explanation 
of the uh, of, of the psukim because he says, as we quoted, that it, it says in all the makas barring kinim that it was only on the Egyptian Egyptian ace. And the truth is that Chazal tell us not only did the Jews get saved and get healed, we found out that certainly even in the, in the in the mak of Dam, not only weren't they affected, but Medr says that they actually became wealthy because as Medr says that Rav uh, Oven says that uh, from the mak of Dam the Jews became wealthy because if you have a, a, a Jew and an Egyptian living in the same house and there was a barrel full of water. So if the Mitzvah went and takes the water, he got blood. And uh, if the Jew went, he got water. But if the Egyptian paid the Jew for the water, then he was able to get to get, uh, to get get water. So maybe to try to explain a little bit what Evan Ezra might have been saying is that we need we need to maybe maybe make a distinction between the the amakas that hurt and even even killed a a a, a, a living beings right uh, uh, some animals some people let's say like the the wild animals or the or the hail where there the kaiso was not hurt at all but the markers that only called, caused physical suffering and no, and no uh, death. So the Ebenezer is saying that it seems quite logical that the Jews also suffered uh, a bit, much, much less, but they had to have some suffering all. And the obvious question is why? Because the truth is, it says, first time Meshavenu came to try to speak to the Jews, beginning the Pasha, it says, Vaidabe Moshe, Kena Banesha, Moshe spoke to the Jewish nation, they couldn't even listen to Moshe, from shortness of breath and, and, and the hard work. And the Sfarna says that the intention is simply I was so exhausted, so totally broken by the work. They couldn't listen to my Shabbana. But the Medrash says, brings up Yehuda ben Becerra, how could it be that if someone comes to you when you're in a terrible situation and promises you that you're going to get out and you're going to become wealthy, are you not going to be happy? How could it be you're not, you're not, you're not going to listen? So what does it mean they didn't listen to my Yehuda? It was hard for them to separate from the Avodah from the idol worship. Because Kaiso were completely, completely involved and, 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 and sunk into the idol worship of Egypt. You remember, they were, they had been there already now for 210 years. This was two generations after the, the, the children of Yaakov came to Mitzrayim. And the young generation was very, very, very involved in the culture of, of Mitzrayim. And they were raised, they were educated in the whole atmosphere of our and and that became their their second nature and therefore there was a need to on a certain level punish the Jews also in order to sort of get through them that their place is not in Egypt and we need to make a distinction between a Yehudi and a non-Jew 
right? And and uh, and, and and therefore, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 Egyptians, even after they got a few makas, they continued to cling to the to the Avodah uh, But but the Jews got got the message and and changed their ways and and went back to serve to serve to serve Hakadosh Baruch So therefore, we could then perhaps go back and and explain the the uh, the Rambam that. The, the kingdom is the one marker where it doesn't say that there was a distinction. Well, and, and therefore it seems, even according to Ramam, that it somehow affected the Jewish, the Jewish nation. And the question is why? So perhaps by the, by the marker of kingdom was the first time that the Egyptian magicians had to give up and they said, Etzpalakimi, this is definitely the finger of Akadish Baruch. There's some dis- difference between the Jewish God and our and our God. That that Klaiso heard this and it was, hey, we are different than the Egyptians. We're not the same as them. We're not cut from the same from the same cloth. And and that was for them the catalyst that that that, that moved them to to go away from their Avaidazara and and come back to Akadishbrok. So therefore it was necessary for the kingdom a little bit at least to affect the Jewish nation, to affect that that change in them, to 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 get them to to be able to listen to Moshe and prepare themselves for 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 the good. And therefore, if if uh, if uh, God's time is a lesson that we have to learn and imprint on our bodies, then clearly we have to also learn that we need to separate ourselves, differentiate ourselves in act, in thoughts, in in attitude from. Our, our neighbors around us, and that will be the catalyst to lead our Kaddish to do the miracles that will bring us to our future redemption. This is one one point nine Chai FM. The program is soul to soul. Hang around; it's just getting better. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb, only on one hundred one point nine Chai FM. 101.9 Chai FM, soul to soul, back on your radio here on Friday afternoon here in Johannesburg. Erev Shabbos, Kodesh, Parshas, Vo'era, as we prepare for another beautiful, beautiful Shabbos. This is officially the last of the longest Shabbos of, of the year. For next week already, it's going to begin to get earlier. And once it gets momentum, before you even know it, we're going to be in the middle of winter. That's the way it goes. And then we'll turn around and it'll be summer again before you know it. I hope you've made your plans for, for next December because it's almost, it's almost here. I had a student once who on the first day of school came and had worked out an exact calculation of how many days of holiday, of school there were until December holidays. I said, wow, you really have interesting, interesting priorities. And anyway, so as we always do at this point on the broadcast, to discuss the important details that we need to know for this Shabbos, Shabbos Parshas, Vo'era, the 14th Shabbos of the, the 14th Parsha of the, uh, of the, uh, of, of the year. So the earliest time for getting your candles lit will be about 20 to 6, 6, 5, 40 is, is the earliest. And again, very, very worthwhile thing to do, especially while shuls are not operating. We don't have to worry about fitting in with a minion. 
do it while the kids are still up, except Shabbos early, daven your Kabbalah Shabbos and your, and your Mayrav, and then sit down to a, to a, to a Shabbos meal at a, at a reasonable hour where the kids are still up, you can still talk to them, you can still do Pash with them, etc., and make the Shabbos experience an amazing one for, for, for them. The standard time for lighting candles is, of course, the Janusburg standard time for candle lighting on Friday afternoon is 6.15, right? Quarter past six. That's when most people are Makabal Shabbos. Obviously, you need to know when your shul will be Makabal Shabbos because you must fit in with them. The latest time for lighting Shabbos candles this Shabbos would be at 6.47. That will be the absolute latest. That's your 18 minutes before before uh, sunset and uh yeah definitely uh if your shul accepts shabbos before that time then uh, accepting shabbos as we said means saying then you would need to get them bef- uh, up before that you cannot wait to the last minute it's just again there as as uh for those who want to keep that that type of situation uh sunset then is at five minutes past seven so if you'd like to daven Mayrav before you make Kiddush and not have to repeat the Shema, you'd have to wait with Mayrav until 7.23, daven Mayrav, and then go and make make your your Kiddush. Tomorrow morning is Pashas for Era, as we say, with the normal Haftarah uh, that we say for that Haftarah, which begins with the words, Kayamar Hashem Eleikim Bekapti, is Beis Yisrael. That's the normal Haftarah for Vavaira. And Shabbos Kodesh ends tomorrow night. Again, last Shabbos of the latest ending will be at 7.39. In three weeks time, it's already going to be 7.30. So it's it's going to, going to move, going to move quickly. So let's, uh, let's enjoy every minute of Shabbos that in fact, that in fact we, uh, we, we have, we have uh, uh, together. We are Learning the halachas of Cholamoyed was still involved in, uh, in, in that very, very important, uh, study. So we know that, uh, uh, in, in the situation of a shop, let's say, that sells, uh, uh, food stuff and other things that would be necessary on, on Cholamoyed, so we said that the owner of such a shop has to open his uh, shop on Chalmoid in order to supply to his uh, to his customers whatever they need for for Yomtev. And since it's quite obvious that uh, that whatever he's buying, whatever he's procuring, whatever he's filling his shop with, are all things that are going to be needed for the tzarech the tzarech so he doesn't have to open it in secret. The shop can be wide open, all all the doors open, because everyone understands that people who are going in there are buying things that they need, either for the subsequent days of Cholomite or for the following days of Yantav, which is all Tzarech Hamayit, all necessary for the Yantav. And if uh, uh, you know, people are paying with credit, so the shopkeeper will be allowed to mark down the amounts that are owed him, whatever he whatever he uh, sells in, in 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 the box, and and uh, and give receipts, whatever whatever it is, take the money, give receipts. Normal commerce, since we're talking about something that is necessary 
for for yontif as and, and of course uh, whatever the the law you know he has to be, if he has to go through the the, the till and and uh, tax has to be paid and the documents have to be produced then that certainly is uh, is allowed to be to be done now it would seem on a, a strictly halachic basis that the owner of the shop if he's open for for selling things that are necessary for the yamtiv then he really should only be allowed to sell to Jews and, and not be allowed to sell to to uh, non-Jews. Because since his whole allowance, all that of him to be open, is because he's selling things like Tzarech And since a non-Jew doesn't have any mitzvah to rejoice and enjoy our Yom Tovim, so strictly speaking, but actually be forbidden for the for the shopkeeper to actually sell to him. However, practically speaking, since the owner of the shop had full permission to open his shop, he's allowed to be doing business because what he's selling is necessary for 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 Yantiv. And and it, it Jews primarily who need all of his merchandise for their Yantiv needs. So therefore he would be allowed to sell if a non Jew walks into the shop. Of course he can sell him. Uh, because of dark Shalom to keep the peace, to keep good relations with our dear, our dear non-Jewish uh, uh, neighbors. Similarly, if you have a, uh, a a yid, but a yid who unfortunately is not yet keeping uh, keeping uh, uh, halacha, so for him also, really, it would be forbidden to sell anything to him either, because. Maybe he's not actually buying for Yomtev. Maybe he's buying for after Yomtev, and that's preparation. You're not allowed to buy on Cholmoid for, for uh, after, after Yomtev. But practically speaking, you don't have to interrogate people. You don't have to clarify why you come here. What are you intending to buy? And therefore, basically, you can sell to any Jew or, or non-Jew who actually, who actually walks, walks in. Now, this would be relevant as far as a food shop is concerned. But let's say other types of shops, which really you can't argue so easily that they are needed for the youngsters. So those kind of shops, the minigas, that they shouldn't open on, on, the, on, on Cholomite. Right? Even though, let's say, you'd be allowed to buy on Cholomite, let's say, clothing, or, or, or shoes, or utensils, or electronics, or whatever it is, that hetter is only when you have some real need for them on, on the yontif, right? A woman whose, uh, whose, uh, yontif outfit got torn, or, or got irrevocably dirty, and she needs to buy a new outfit to have something to wear, Tomorrow, whatever, on, on the imminent days of Yantiv, then, then that you can do. But where there's no real need for the upcoming, for the upcoming, uh, uh, Yantiv, just something you want to, you want to buy for, for, for later or something, uh, something like that. It's just, uh, you know, to have an extra, uh, garment. She likes it, right? She has already has, Bokshem, enough Yantiv. Outfits, and she just wants another nice. Uh, so she has a repertoire. Yeah, she liked it, and 
she'll wear on Yonta whatever she fa- fancies at that at that moment. So that would not be allowed to be bought on the on 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 Yontif because that is not really with it's not needed for the Yontif itself. We'll come back with our final segments in a moment. This is one one point nine Chai FM. The program is Soul to Soul, and this is the greatest Jewish radio station in all of Africa. We'll be back. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Musha Schnurb, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Chai FM, Soul to Soul on Friday afternoon, Nerev Shabbos Kodesh Pashas Fahir, Rabbi Moshe Schnurbier. We are back on your radio for our final segment. We are learning the laws of Cholmoid, what you can and can't buy and, and sell, what kind of shops can be open on Yom Tov, when, when, where you allow to shop on, on Yom Tov. So we're saying very important points that there's certain shops that if they, what they're selling are things that people will need or may need for the upcoming days of Chalmoyed or Yom Tov, then you're allowed to to be open and, and customers can come and buy there on, on Chalmoyed. Now, even where there is a real concrete need for the item on Chalmoyed or on Yom Tov itself, but nevertheless, even then, if it was something that the person could have purchased and acquired before Yontif, and she was a little bit, uh, you know, laid back to the point of being inert uh, and, and perhaps being a little lazy and didn't go get it then and figured I'll just go on Cholmoy to get it. So that you're not allowed to buy on, on Cholmoy. Like anything, like any other situation where a person intentionally left over work to do on Cholomoyed, that is not allowed to be done. Now, practically speaking, the the custom amongst Yidin is that we obviously we run and we jump and we make every effort we possibly can to buy everything we might need for the Yantiv before the Yantiv even even uh, even begins. And if these kind of food shops then open on, on Cholmoyed, so most of the customers are going to be those kind of people that were, if someone was really organized and bought everything they needed, then maybe the customers would be people that are buying not for the Yantiv. The reality is it's impossible. You think you buy enough and you think you have enough and then, you know, you'll guess like a certain food or a certain salad or whatever, and it's all gone and you need to buy more. You never could possibly really predict how much of anything you're going to need. And therefore, while we try, of course, to, to do all our shopping and, and have everything lay in all our supplies, before you want to, it's almost inevitable that sometime on Cholmoy, one's going to have to go to the shop and, uh, and get, and get some, some, uh, some more. Right? Uh, so therefore, Oh, okay. So, so if if you if you believe that most of your customers are going to be people who are not buying for Yontif, or people that knowing the shop will be open on Cholmoyed, kind of put off their pre-Yontif shopping and figure we'll just do it on on uh, on Cholmoyed. If that's so, you really wouldn't be allowed to open the shop for 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 them. And someone needs to buy something then urgently, 
uh, some clothing or, or shoes, whatever, on Yom Tov. So, and, and it wasn't that he, that he you know, was lazy. They, they, his shoes broke on, on the first day of Yom Tov. And he needs a pair of, of, uh, of, of shoes. Right? And if he doesn't, he's not gonna have a, he's not gonna have anything to wear on, on Yom Tov. So there you could definitely phone the owner of the shoe shop. Obviously, and I mentioned always, we're talking here about shops that are owned by Jews. Goyim have no obligation to keep any halachas on Chalmah. They, of course, can be open. But you can go to your, you can phone your local, uh, uh, Jewish shoe shop owner who's closed on Chalmah and ask him that could you buy the whatever it is that you, that you need to, to, uh, to buy. And, uh, yeah, if he knows that there are Yidin who every day will, will be in a situation of needing to, to buy something. And, uh, they'll want to buy in, in a permitted way. Those, those ingredients and, and those items that they need for, for Yantiv. So then he would be allowed to open a shop, let's say for just a few hours a day to service the customers who might be coming for things they need for, for Yantiv. But he has to be very, very careful in that case that the sale should be done quite low key under, under the, under, under the radar. Right? And certainly if, uh, if the, the shop is found at a, at a, uh, a place where it's off the beaten track where people are not gonna necessarily go there or see it, so then it's a little bit more lenient. We might have more of a, of a, of a license to open it, uh, uh, normally because people aren't gonna know it. But if it's certainly a shop that's in the public eye, in the public uh, space, so then one has to really, if one is going to be open, one has to make some kind of deviation in the normal way we would open. But that, in other words, if you usually open up all the doors, so then you just open one door. If there's uh, you know, a door and then, and then a, a security gate, you know, just bring it down halfway. Let it look like it's not so open. You want to make sure that people will recognize that you're not open for business as as uh as as normal, right? And and you actually need to put up a sign on the doors to, to the point where the shop is open for those who need things for yamta between such and such such and such a, a an hour, right? And and even those things that one's allowed to buy on on Chalamayid, right? You really should not buy them in a Jewish owned shop that has no right to be open. That, that is certainly a decision one has to, uh, one has to make. Anyway, that's about a lot of time we have for today. And therefore, I'm going to take the opportunity to wish all of you an amazing, beautiful Shabbos. Let's say, uh, for some people, uh, it's still holiday Shabbos. Many have already gone back to work and are kind of into the swing things. In any event, enjoy it. Those who, uh, 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 may be dominating with a minion, although most people are not. Davin with Kavana, Davin, Davin for all of us. We need, we need so much thrill. We need so much, so much Yeshuas. And to each and every one of you, out of our beautiful radio family, I wish you all a very, very great good Shabbos. There are 39 milahot which constitute forms of work forbidden on the Sabbath. It's the why behind the way we do the things we do. Join Rabbi Musha Schnurb now for Hilchos Shabbos, only on 101.9 High FM.
Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.